1: Political thrillers involve sex, money, and terrorism, all in exotic settings, of course, expedited by a mettlesome female James Bond called Lee Carruthers. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Marilyn talks about the secret life she lives that so vividly contrasts with her academic career and what she'd do differently second time round. But before we talk to Marilyn. Just a reminder that the show notes for this Binge Reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our discussion, plus links to Marilyn's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Marilyn. Hello there, Marilyn, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us.
2: Hello, Jenny. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Beginning at the beginning, was there a a once-upon-a-time moment when you realized that you just had to write fiction or somehow things would be incomplete? You wouldn't quite have done what you wanted to do in the world. And if so, was there a catalyst?
2: My cousin, Bobby, was in town just recently, and she told me I had always said I wanted to write mysteries. So despite the fact that I can't remember it, I must have said it. What the real catalyst for starting now was when I finished my dissertation. Most people, when they finish their dissertations, plan to write books exposing how awful the program is. I wrote a a book about a hard-nosed detective. Uh, it it got me an agent and almost sold, but it didn't. So when it didn't sell, I went back to what I was supposed to be doing, which was teaching history.
1: Oh, I see. So you sort of had an early start at the tri- at Tri being a writer and then decided on academia instead. Is that what happened?
2: Well, I had finished my dissertation and I had a job. So that was what I was supposed to be doing. And so I put my writing skills to academic purposes. It was not until I retired that I settled down to try to learn how to write a novel.
1: I see. And so that first book, um, did that ever see the light of day?
2: Uh, No. And I'm Fairly glad it didn't, because I don't think it was a very good book.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's good. That's good. So your Lee Carruthers series, I think book one, The Spider Catchers, you say that it revolves around sex, money and terrorism. And that's quite a reasonable way to um, describe the whole series, really. She's like a female James Bond. And even the name is fairly generically neutral, isn't it? Lee Carruthers could be either male or female. She's Deadly in action and very lucky. I chose it that way. Yeah, I thought you probably did. What made you decide on a political thriller as a genre?
2: I decided to write what I like to read. I like to read political thrillers placed in uh, located in places where I've been or where I'd like to go. So that's what Lee does.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, that's wonderful. And when we get on to talking a little bit about your reading habits a bit later, you can share with us some of those favourite thrillers too. Your work as a lecturer in terrorism would obviously have given you a strong background for the 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 backstory of Lee. But I'm very fascinated with that mention on your website that you're living in a 200-year-old brick farmhouse in southern Pennsylvania. Now, where I sit, that sounds as if it's countryside, although it might not be. And I've got this picture of somebody living in an idyllic sort of rural circumstances and dreaming up terrorism stories. Is that what it's like?
2: Yes, that's pretty much what it's like. Um, I dream up terrorism stories, but I put them in places that are not idyllic.
1: Yes, well hopefully most terrorism happens in places that are very um, dysfunctional in one way or another, don't they? But you've you've been in southern Pennsylvania for most of your career, but still working in the terrorism field. How do you get to know about terrorism when you're living in a country environment yourself. Is there a way that you can go about
2: that? What I did was to do a lot of research in English and in French. Mm -hmm. And I should have had German, but I don't. Uh, That was the way I set up a course I taught. And uh, that is how I became a terrorism quote expert, close quote. Uh, I became an expert by saying I was.
1: But you obviously also were very drawn to the subject. It must have had a very deep interest for you.
2: It did. It still does. Um, it is one of the most important facts in modern life, one of the most difficult facts in modern life to deal with, which is why it interested me.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right, too. Your character, Lee, has a very colourful backstory. And it seems there could be more interesting revelations to come. I, I see that in the Hong Kong Central book, I think that's book three, we discover, and she discovers, that her father had led a double life. She knows nothing about this until after he dies. Tell us a little bit about her background.
2: The Carruthers family is from uh, down east Maine, actually, not very far from the French, uh, from the Canadian border. Uh, And Lee is the third generation in her family to deal with intelligence matters. Her grandmother uh, ran a safe house and escape route for allied uh, pilots, allied crew people uh, during the Second World War for OSS. Her father, uh, who was not the CIA officer she thought he was, was actually a CIA analyst Working in the office, the headquarters office in Langley. And Lee managed to uh, become an analyst as well, although not for long at the headquarters in Langley. When she discovered her father's second life, his other wife and other daughter, it almost destroyed her. But a friend of her father's, Sidney Worthington, took her under his wing and posted her to Beirut. And that was where she began doing those little jobs she does for Sydney. He sent her out to the Bacaw Valley to meet uh, an agent and pick up a file because she had the best Arabic in the office. When she successfully completed that job, he found other jobs for her, which meant that she had to acquire a whole skill set different from that of a of a CIA analyst.
1: Sure. Sure. And did you always start out with the idea that it was going to be a series?
2: I think I did. Uh, when I finished the first book, it had a link to the second book and a link from the second book to the third book. And now I'm trying to figure out the fourth book. Aha.
1: Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and I, I think you've said I, I read somewhere in an interview that you did that um, the fourth book is going to be set in ISIS and is going to revolve around drones and and set in Boston, is that right?
2: Well, it was when I said it. But (laughs) Lee and I decided we didn't like the idea, so we changed our minds. I'll tell you what I said, or rather Lee said, to Sydney in the only scene I have written for, for the fourth book. Yes, I did go to Boston. I didn't like the weather. I didn't like the work. I didn't like working in an office. I don't play well. With others.
1: Uh-huh, because in the other books, oh, I see, she went to Boston to join that friend of hers because in the other books, that's always presented as a possibility, isn't it? Uh, yes, I understand what, what you're meaning. That's great. Have you ever lived in Boston yourself?
2: I've never lived there. I've been there, and I like it very much, but I didn't find that I wanted to write about it, nor did I find I wanted to write about uh, sure. internet technology. Uh,
1: great, yeah. You also get the sense that you probably like to travel because... Um, she moves around a lot, there's exotic settings, and they're very well drawn. They're very comprehensive and real. There is a feeling that um, you've been there. Do you travel for the research, to, to research the books?
2: Not really. Uh, I travel on the internet. Uh, the uh, I, I've not been either to uh, Morocco or to Dubai, but the wealth of information I could find on the internet it made me feel that I was really there when I was writing about it. Oh, the, the fact is that I've been to Hong Kong and like it very much, and I have to tell you that that was the hardest book to write.
1: Because you'd actually been there. Because I knew so much yeah. about it.. Yeah. That. And what about Istanbul?
2: That is my second favorite uh, city in the world, and I think I'm pretty sure that's where volume four is going to go.
1: So you've done another book. I'm not quite sure where it comes in terms of when it was written, but you've got a fourth novel, Aftermath, which is set in Baltimore in the 80s and has a middle-aged PI named Ann Carter. Um, how does that fit in with the Lee Carruthers series? Where does that come in?
2: Uh, I started that book before I started the Carruthers series. Um I was stung by an insect and I went into anaphylactic shock and I had to be hauled off to the hospital in an ambulance, which introduced me to an EMT and I had a character that I needed to find a story to go with. I started that book while I was still teaching and I wrote most of it and then I got stuck. One of the problems of of writing by the seat of your pants is sometimes you just can't get where you're going think you want to go. And the trick there is to put the, the project away for a while and let it sit. I let it sit while I worked on Lee Carruthers, and then I got stuck in the Hong Kong Central book, put that away and went back to Aftermath. It was not until I realised that I was going to have to write the Laotian jungle into Aftermath that I could finish the book.
1: Oh, is that right? Gosh. Gotcha. Yeah, and I haven't actually read Aftermath, I must admit, but I did see a reference that um, there was something about the Vietnam War and and the demonstrations against the Vietnam War that features in that book because it's set in the 80s. And I wondered if you you have lectured on the Vietnam War as well, haven't you? And I wondered if that also fed into the backstory of Aftermath.
2: It did. Um, the In 1980, we're working in the aftermath of the war and all the problems with the aftermath of the war. Um, Charlie McGee, the EMT, was a veteran, and the second plot of the book about a colonel of, of uh, Green Berets, who had gone missing, was also uh, part of the war. The the war connection uh, led me into writing those two plots. And it, it was sort of difficult, actually. Um, I was working in 1980. And if you think about it, Most of the things that one uses today to find information and to deal with things, cell phones, computers, the internet, didn't exist in those days. So we had to go back to good old uh, gumshoe, uh, old-fashioned detective work, and it was sometimes a little difficult to manage.
1: Yeah, I I, I was thinking that it would be... Difficult to write something when there were no cell phones, no texts. It would well, it would be a very different environment, anyway, wouldn't it? Mm. It was
2: a very different environment. No computer at all. She had to. She had to type up her reports on a typewriter.
1: Yeah, and do you think is there a chance there might be others? Is that likely to develop into a series as well? That's
2: possible. Uh, I don't have any any ideas cooking right now, but she's in the the back of my head working so maybe after I get the fourth Lee Carruthers finished I'll go back and deal with Annie again.
1: Yeah now I'm very impressed that you say you you are a pantser writer for those who aren't familiar with that term that's someone who more or less just starts writing and keeps going because thrillers often do require a little bit more plotting so have you you started as a pantser and you still are a pantser today or has your Process evolved as you've got more books under your
2: belt. I've really tried to plot for each and every one of them, uh, and I just haven't been able to do it. Once at some stage in the plot plotting process, I just have to start writing. It helps that I usually know where I'm going and where I'm going to end. Uh, so, the, so the answer is not as bad as it sounds. And a lot of times uh, things happen. They happen and you just have to write them in. I had an idea for volume number four and I just realized that Sydney wouldn't do that. He just refused to do it. So I had to scrap that idea and go back to another one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, though. If you know where you want to end up, then it's a matter of just working out a variety of ways that you might get there, but but it's helpful to know where you're ending up, isn't it?
2: It is. Uh, and I just don't know right now where I want to end up.
1: <laughs> right. Um, I know that you've also taught on frontier pioneer history, and living in this um, historic farmhouse, you can see that I'm interested in history. And also, I guess it must be pretty near to Gettysburg. You had quite a lot of civil war action in Southern Pennsylvania, didn't you? I wondered if you'd ever been tempted at the idea of writing pioneer history or civil war history th- uh, mysteries or thrillers.
2: The only time I ever thought about writing a historical mystery was when I was in Cincinnati doing research for my dissertation. And I came up with a couple of female detectives called Frank and Manley. Uh, that, that went absolutely nowhere. Historical novels are a real specialty and much more difficult from my point of view to write than to than writing in the present day. You just have to have so many things right because anybody who reads it will know something about the about the period and will catch you out every time you make a mistake.
1: Yes. Yeah. You've mentioned your dissertation a couple of times, and I'm curious to ask What was the topic of
2: it? It was money. Uh, uh, The dissertation was about the bank in Cincinnati that caused the panic of 1819. Um, It was part of a national bank system, and it got stuck with, with loans it couldn't collect. The Ohio River froze early that year, and farmers couldn't market their produce. The produce went down normally to New Orleans to be sold on the international market but they couldn't move their produce. When the river thawed, all that stuff landed in New Orleans at the same time, and the market collapsed. So nobody around in the Cincinnati area could pay back the money they borrowed from the bank. And the bank wound up having to uh, foreclose on a great deal of of, uh, real estate they owned much of southern southern Ohio Indiana and Northern Kentucky so
1: it was sheer misfortune not um you know not not uh, fraud of any sort it
2: wasn't bad banking it was sheer misfortune but uh, it pulled down the economy yeah. of the United States
1: That's fascinating I didn't know that it happened but that sounds like an amazingly interesting topic to look into it
2: was interesting and I've always been interested in the way money works. That's how money got into Lee Carruthers' life. Uh, I just am interested in the way the market works, the way money moves, the way way, uh, uh, it behaves. It was a a minor field in my uh, my PhD dissertation, money and banking was. So I found myself interested when I started dealing with terrorism in terrorism funding and how it worked which is one of the things Lee yeah. does.
1: Yeah. She she follows um, bad money. Well, not bad money, but what do they call it? when, Yeah, when you are, are banking money that's um, not not legitimately gained. Yeah, yeah.
2: I call it black money. Oh, it's called money. Black laundry. money. That's and, right, black uh, money. I call it black yeah. money, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So what do your readers tell you they like about Lee Carruthers? Do you get some feedback and what, what do they particularly like about them?
2: The thing that pleases me most when they say it is that they they like the authenticity in the books. They feel real. And my editor tells me that every time she go, edits one of my books, she feels as if she's taken a trip, which I regard as a fairly high compliment. Um because that's what I'm going for. Yeah. Although yeah. one of my readers, there's a knife fight in uh, the Dubai book. And one of my readers, a retired special forces officer said he just didn't quite understand how she could deal with edged weapons, which is what they, he called them. I'm afraid that I answered him rather flippantly because you don't really expect a CIA analyst to be able to fight with knives. But that was one of the skills she had to learn to stay alive while doing jobs for Sydney.
1: Yes, that's right. And she is quite a a mars- nifty martial. We don't know if she's a martial arts ex- expert, but she's pretty nifty at um, getting rid of bad guys when they attack her. Well,
2: that's one of the ways she stays alive.
1: Yeah, sure. Have you ever done any martial arts yourself? Uh,
2: no, uh, a little bit. Yoga was the closest I ever got to martial arts, and I was, I must admit, not very good at yoga. This is all, you understand, a dream of mine that in another life I might have been like Lee. I think that's the way a lot of people write their uh, protagonists.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree, and and there is such a deep, you've got a sense of deep commitment to the character, so I quite understand what you're saying. You feel as if you have really invested a huge amount of time and understanding and getting to know her. Yes. So as we've mentioned, this is a podcast called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's factored a little bit around the change in reading habits where people are now seeking out series books. It's a little bit like the Netflix phenomenon in reading, where people like to know that there's going to be a series. If they invest their time in reading book one and like it, that there's going to be two and three. So binge reading. I wonder, have you binge read yourself in the past? And if so, who are your favourite authors to binge read?
2: When I was dealing with the Vietnamese War, I did a lot of research into First World War because it seemed to have a comparable a level of lack of understanding on the part of the higher brass. And I still retain an interest in it, although it's not my favorite war. Uh, I'm not sure I have a favorite war, but it's certainly not one of them. But I I have a couple of series that I like to read that connect with the um, First World War. Charles Todd an American mother and son writing combination, which I think is unusual, has two series that connect to the First World War. The first one is Bess Crawford, who is a nurse in a casualty clearing uh, hospital in the, on the front lines in the First World War. <clears throat> and the second is Inspector Ian Rutledge. And his work takes place after the war where he has had um, a breakdown that he has to hide. You you just can't have uh, that sort of thing. It's morally uh, indefensible. But he's haunted quite literally by one of his troopers, and he and the trooper uh, do the detective work. He's gone. He works for Scotland Yard. He's gone back to Scotland Yard after the war, hiding his uh, his hauntings. Uh, what else do I like? And
1: so I haven't I haven't heard of Charles Todd actually. So. That's a new one to me.
2: Look him up. I like Bess Crawford better, probably because she's a, is a female protagonist, but Rutledge is good too.
1: Yeah.
2: Also, I've got a couple more I'd like to recommend. Michael Pierce's Mamre Zapt uh, series, which takes place in Egypt before the First World War during the period when England was, uh, was occupying e- Egypt. The Mammer Zapt is, a, is uh, the secret service, the head of the secret service. And the books are not only intriguing, but also uh, Pierce has a way with words. They're also very funny sometimes.
1: And is that P-S-P-E-A-R-S-E or C-E, do you know? C-E.
2: C-E. Um, and finally, amongst all of the series I like, donna leon whose commissario brunetti series takes place in the present time in venice uh he's what can i say about him other than the fact that that the most marvelous recipes for food come out of that book their books um he's a a not your basic hard-nosed cop he's a very sympathetic empathetic man and i find him enchanting to spend time with.
1: Yes, I've read Donna Leon. She is lovely. Mm.
2: Oh, so you know him?
1: I do know her, yes. I don't know the other two, so I'd be very interested in looking them up. Perhaps just circling around back to the beginning, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything?
2: I'd start much earlier. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Instead of spending so much time teaching, I would in what in the interstices between teaching, I would spend much more time learning how to write a novel. I'm, uh, you know, I've got colleagues who have 15 books out, I've got four, and that's because I didn't start and stay with it early enough. I wish I yes. had. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, what is next for Marilyn the writer? What are your new projects under development?
2: Well, I've got that. Well, before I get to the fiction, I'm writing, I'm working on a nonfiction project right now. I'm editing the Vietnamese, the English language translation of a Vietnamese book about the Bronze Age, which I'm finding very fascinating. When i studied the Vietnamese War, I studied Vietnamese history as well, and I find the uh, the Bronze Age particularly interesting. As a matter of fact, my favorite nonfiction publication is article about Vietnamese military history in 300 BC. So that I have to work on while my next project is ticking over in in my head, that volume four, which may, probably will go to Istanbul.
1: And so the Bronze Age, is is that 300 BC in Vietnam? I wasn't sure of the date. Is that the date?
2: Yes. Yeah, Uh, that's that's my favorite nonfiction article. Yes, 300 BC in Vietnam.
1: Yeah. That's an extreme contrast to doing Lee Carruthers, isn't it? I can understand that it would be great to have two contrasting things like that to work on. Well, it is
2: an extreme contrast because most of the research that I could do in 300 BC is archaeological, that sort of early uh, document, early uh, text studies. And that, of course, I I wrote when I was when I was teaching the Vietnamese war. Yeah. So it sort of backed up the Vietnamese military history in 300 BC, sort of backed up what the Vietnamese were doing during our war.
1: Amazing, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're running out of time, Marilyn. Um, Where can readers find you online? Do you welcome readers um, contacting you on Facebook, or are you active on social media? I am.
2: Uh, I also have a website that I would would like people to contact me if they like. First thing you have to understand is the weird spelling of my name. Marilyn has two Ns and LaRue is L-A-R-E-W.
1: Yes, how did you get the two Ns? Well,
2: my mother was planning to name me Jacqueline and some one of her friends named a baby Jacqueline first. So she named me Marilyn, but she made it particularly unusual by putting a second N on it. (laughs) And with the LaRue, my husband's people were French Huguenots and they refugee to Holland. <laughs> and I think that's where it got its rather germ looking spelling. Anyway, my website is www.marilynlaRue.com, where readers will find excerpts from all of my novels as well as a page where they can get a free Leaker Brothers short story called weapon of mass destruction for signing up for my very occasional uh, newsletter. I'm more active on, on Facebook than any other. My Facebook is, uh, what is it, www.facebook.com forward slash Maryland dot LaRue. And I would be pleased if people would come and find me there. I'm less active on Twitter, but my Twitter handle is at Maryland underscore LaRue.
1: Sure, and we'll put links to all of those. On the transcript, yeah, yeah, so that people will be able to just click and find you. So what we'll do, we'll put up full show notes with links to your books and your websites and things so that people can easily just follow you after they've heard the, broad, the their podcast.
2: Good. I'd be very happy.
1: Thanks so much for being with us today. It's been lovely to be able to talk.
2: Thank you, Jenny. I'm very pleased to be here with you.
1: And I'll look forward to reading about ISIS and drones in book four. <laughs> when are you hoping to have that one finished?
2: I haven't had that one started, except for that that uh, scene with Sydney telling him why she's not in Boston.
1: <laughs> so, does it take you about a year to write a book of, of the leak or other sort? Or
2: I think it will. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, will look all the very best with it. First I need a
2: (laughs) plot.
1: Oh, it'll come. I'm sure it'll come. But all the very best with it and with the historical nonfiction that you're doing right now. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at d c audio services at gmail.com that's D for Daniel C for Charlie audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes he's fast he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with our voiceovers are done by Abe raffles another gem of sound and screen Abe has 20 years of experience on on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and tv presenter i think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm he is super easy to work with no matter what the job you'll find him at abe a b e at point and shoot dot co dot nz as i say Full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.